Welcome to episode 431 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a very insightful, engaging conversation with author, professor, and activist Tony Jensen. We talk with Tony about her latest book of essays titled Carrie. Being Métis, growing up in Iowa, tribal enrollment, being dispossessed from the land, spending time with Native people, fracking structures and violence against Indigenous women, guns, being so tied to the Second Amendment's words, yet ignoring tribal treaties, building community via art, among other things. A grand conversation with Tony Jensen on this week's episode. We have an EW essay titled Country Club and an essay titled Survival of the Artist, written by TNR regular contributor, New York City-based director, writer, and cabaret critic, our good friend Jerry Geddes. And we have a poem called Abel. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 431 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. The green plastic watering can For a fake Chinese rubber and the fake plastic girl Which you bought from a rubber man In a town full of Around. 
Country Club. She said, I am not here for that. He said, I will decide what I need you for. She runs for the door. He stops her. She does not work there anymore. He continues to dig deep into the earth for fuel and money. She is lost, and most don't know and don't care because it's been going on since we crossed the ocean to get here. And to think about it makes them feel sick and crummy, wrapped up tight in their past like a perfumed and oiled mummy, unwilling to face the bombast of responsibility, humility, and a willingness to really work at understanding and then acting to cultivate and propagate solutions. Perhaps it will take a revolution. We are having a tough time letting go of our guns and election runs. The KKK and the Knights of Columbus, the NRA and the scoundrels perpetuating division among us. Just last night, I was at a country club for an arts event that my children were a part of. Eating some supper after the performance outside, we, me and my family, were sitting on Adirondack chairs together with iced tea, lemonade, burgers, dogs, salads, cookies, and fudge brownies. A messenger came to us begrudgingly with the word that we need to go back under the rented tent for we were not allowed where the open air may freely circumvent. That space was for members. A smile, a wink, a nod, a blink, and to think that we are anything more than rudderless pretenders.
Good morning. Hello, Tony Jensen. Is that you? It is. How are you? Good. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you. It's nice to be on. Uh, before we get started, let me share a little background information with our listeners. Tony Jensen is the author of Carrie, a memoir and essays about gun violence and land, indigenous women's lives, among other things, published by Ballantine in September 2020. She is also the author of a short story collection called From the Hilltop. Ms. Jensen is the recipient of the Catherine Ann Porter Prize for Fiction and the Gary Wilson Short Fiction Award. Her essays and stories have been published in journals such as Orion, Catapult, and Ecotone. She teaches in the Programs in Creative Writing and Translation at the University of Arkansas and in the Low Residency MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. She is May Teese. Troubadours and Rock On Tours is happy to have on the program Tony Jensen. So, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the program. And I'd like to get right into, uh, I guess, your background. You know, uh, uh, Métis, I think, is significant to uh, who you are and how you look at the world. So we could start there, if you like, maybe help us understand that uh, connection. Sure. Being Métis just means literally that you're from a mixed identity of a native tribe or tribes and or a First Nations tribe or tribes if you're from Canada and um, some other ancestry. It's usually French, sometimes English or Scottish. And so many Métis people trace their heritage back to the days of trappers and traders um, coming to the Americas and intermarrying with Native women. And so that's generally, you know, um, the heritage. In my case, I'm Alberta Metis, but I grew up in the States. So I think that's an added twist or wrinkle to, um, to the mixed nature of my heritage in that, you know, being Alberta Metis, but not growing up in Canada, growing up instead in rural Iowa in a predominantly white town gives me an interesting perspective, I think, on Native identity in the state and, you know, issues like tribal enrollment and um, land back, which is a big issue right now, people wanting Native tribes to get their land back. And I support that movement in large part because Métis people were dispossessed from their lands, you know, for so many years. So that's a little bit about where and still are dispossessed from their lands in many cases, especially, um, you know, certain parts of Canada. So in any case, I'm. That's a little bit about my heritage and about how I approach writing um, from a place of heritage and land and connection or disconnection with both. Have you always uh, felt that uh, part of your your uh, history as as predominant since you were a child? I don't know about as predominant. I mean, I think that. That's difficult to say, given that, you know, when you're a child, how you're raised is just how you are, right? Um, and so I think the worldview that I have is shaped also by growing up in rural Iowa, which is farming community and people feel strong connections to place and land there as well, non-Native people, non-Indigenous people. So, so you know, it's hard to, to 
separate out for me what comes from where necessarily, right? As far as feeling and connection to land, if that makes sense. Sure, I think so. And so you're uh, a person growing up in rural Iowa, and then you realize you you love to write, is is that at or read or both, and then that took you to the next step in terms of your education and your journey in that way. Yeah, I both my grandmothers were librarians, and my mom um, worked full time for the only law firm in town. She was a legal secretary, and so you know during tax season, for example, I mean this is a town of fewer than a thousand people. There's no stoplights, right? And so the lawyer in town then during tax season and you know other seasons it's very busy 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 office and so she worked saturdays and she worked long hours um and so you know we spent a lot of time with our grandparents and my sister and my brother and i and we i had full run of the library i could read check out any book i was instructed both grandmothers were instructed to let me check out any book i wanted from a young age and so i read voraciously i read a few authors, I'd read, you know, all of their books by the time I was 10, 11 years old, you know, and these are adult um, writers. I liked mystery novels in particular, even when I was really young. And so I, I learned a lot about murder, probably at an inappropriate age. But <laughs> I also learned a love and appreciation for poetry and nonfiction and um you know, history and on all sorts of things. And so I think that reading came first and everyone in my family read. Um, I say I, in my, as a teacher too, now you have a, this thing called a teaching statement that you have to do if you apply for a job. And in my teaching statement, it talks about how in my family, all the best arguments were about books. We had plenty of arguments about you know, other things, familial things, violence, um, how people were supposed to act even the land itself. But our best arguments were always about books, which books were good and why. And so, yeah, I grew up with everyone reading books and everyone watching sports and everyone um, having some sort of outdoor, outdoor pursuits too, whether it was fishing or hunting or working a trap line um, or gardening. You know, everyone was involved with, with sports and land and books. So I think those are three of the things that really shaped my growing up. It sounds very Americana. Yes, in some ways. I don't know how many Americans grow up working a trap line or grow up in no stoplight towns these days, but I suppose there was a time when all of that was right. And yeah, right, exactly. In my ideal sense of you know what what it, uh, America could be or it was or is that that's uh, so it's my own, I'm projecting. I'm sure. When I was a kid. I, I used to like Agatha Christie. I used to read Agatha Christie mm -hmm. all the time. So I don't, uh, you know, you reminded me of that. I loved it. Uh, and what were some of the other authors when you were a kid? You said you you read the, all of their works. Yeah, I read. Um, I read all of the. Um, I can't think of the name of the writer. There was a mystery writer in particular whose name is escaping me at the moment. But I read all of her works and. Um, I also read all of the the Jack London the outdoor sorts of books, and so, yeah, those were those were two of the the authors. Shoot, I'll come up with her name. I'm sure. Oh, we had Jack London. I know that one. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. So um, the so then you you uh, in high school and in college you kept uh, nurturing your your love of of the word uh, of a written word, 
and uh, you ended up, I, I guess, is that what you majored in when you went to college? Well, writing. I did, yeah, I didn't pick a major for a really long time. I sort of floated between this, that, or the other. I um, got a journalism scholarship so that um, I didn't have to pay tuition or at University of South Dakota. It was through the Al Newharth, who founded USA Today, started a fund there. And now I think the scholarships go to more students and are smaller. But back then, there were two per year Newharth scholars. So from my little town in Iowa, um, I got this full-ride scholarship to go to, to university. And it was really life-changing because everyone else I knew was going to schools in Iowa or Missouri. And um, I didn't hardly know anyone there. So it was a real chance to kind of start over. And yeah, so I worked for the school paper. I, I wrote about sports and theater and everything else. And that, I think, was probably the foundational experience. I did eventually major in English. Um, but by the end, I got also really interested in criminal justice. And had I had another year or two to decide those things, I probably would have gone that way versus English. And what what the decade are we talking about when all this was occurring? I, I went to college in 1989, and then I was in school in the 90s, um, so mostly. Yeah. Uh and and uh, and then you know did is that when you really started uh, thinking more about um, the uh, indigenous history that you're connected to? I mean, I think I've always known and thought about it. It's just something you grow up with and it, it, it shapes your worldview. But yes, that's the time I was around the most native people, um, absolutely around Lakota people. I worked at the um, in graduate school there when I did my master's after undergrad, I worked as a as an assistant at the Institute of American Indian Studies there, Leonard Bruyer and Meg Quintal were in charge of it back then. And it was in the basement of the English building. And so it was just this lovely, I could go to class upstairs, you know, and teach my freshman comp or beginning creative writing or literature classes upstairs and then go down to the basement and have coffee with Leonard. And it was the first time outside of my own family that I got to be around a lot of other Native people and spend a lot of time with. And that was foundational, absolutely, to to forming a broader view of what it was like to be in community with Native people outside of your own family. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Carrie, I haven't read it, but I, I can't wait to. Uh, I'm I'm getting a sense based on you know the the little blurb that uh, I saw in your bio that it has a, a lot to do with gun violence and um, and also uh, it seems to me maybe not the book but I, I know some of your activism uh, you, I'm sure you'll clarify uh, has to do with violence against women uh, indigenous women in particular. Um, and I, I know a little bit about that from some some uh, articles I've read and uh, actually a, a movie or two I've seen as well. Uh, is is that correct? Uh, are, are, you, are you focused to a certain extent in carry as well as just generally on, on violence against uh, indigenous women? Yeah, that is a, a research area and a writing area. And carry does touch on domestic violence, especially gun violence, um, as well as how indigenous women are at risk around fracking and other oil extraction sites. Um, whenever you have an influx of, of men without their families, you know, let's say around an army base, um, or definitely in more rural areas where you have oil and gas extraction, you have this influx of workers and 
you have you don't have the infrastructure that you have in cities or even towns where there are army bases, right? Um, drive by any army base and you'll see, you know, shortly you'll see strip clubs, right? And so um, there aren't strip clubs like that in the middle of nowhere where there's fracking. And so women will sign up and they'll think that they'll be cleaning um, and instead they'll end up trafficked essentially by by the end. And that's something that I write about in the first essay in Carrie, the Women in the Fracklands essay, and the first chapter. So yeah, that's been a research interest. Carrie focuses on that, um, as well as on violence against women and people in America more broadly, including indigenous people. And yes, the piece, the whole book is filtered through the lens of being an indigenous woman, right? So I'm always talking about whose land we're on, how it was taken, you know, um, whether it was bought or stolen, and usually stolen, those sorts of things factor in. And that factors in too when you're thinking about violence against women. If you go back to the beginning of the country and it's violent start, there isn't any way to unsee that as part of the legacy of violence against indigenous women and indigenous people more broadly today. And so I'm linking that start of the country that original taking of the land with the taking by force of indigenous women's bodies in contemporary life. And so, yeah, I do make that link. Um, more broadly, the book too is about gun violence overall though, about mass violence, about domestic violence, about you know interpersonal violence involving guns, um, sort of the whole spectrum of what we consider to be gun violence in the States. You know, I've had conversations over the years with many guests uh, focusing on these issues from different perspectives, and um, uh, I, I'm wondering what your your view is. I'm, I'm thinking about my listeners that have heard all these conversations. Now they're hearing your perspective. What's, what's your view uh, on the, the Second Amendment and, and the right to bear arms and all that stuff? I think the Second Amendment is as important as any of the amendments and all the other amendments are seen to be more malleable um, and more changing. And I think that that parsing, there was an article recently that I read that parsed the language looking at history of language and lexicon and punctuation. And really, it's a document that was written in a time period for a time period. And there was no way for anyone then to have understood who and what this country would become, right, um, in contemporary times. And so, like any other document, historical document, we have to parse the language carefully and be sure we're understanding correctly. There's such broad interpretation about what the Second Amendment even means or what it's really saying um, that I think we have to be careful there. And then we have to also be careful. We only observe and hold reverent certain pieces of documentation, tribal treaties, for example, mm -hmm. have been ignored, right? And so if those aren't to be revered, and those are written much more clearly, generally, too, than the Second Amendment, you know, without a whole lot of room for argument, and yet they're ignored, but we're supposed to revere as wholly the Second Amendment, and it's one interpretation also. And so I think that in a modern world, we have to catch up a little bit. Um, we have to we have to understand that these historic documents must be fluid and must be must not be held up 
to hold back our progress as a country and as a culture. And that's what people who are hardline Second Amendment means right to bear arms, you know, including AK-47s, including um, precluding having sensible gun laws. I mean, no, I'm not I'm not for, um, you know, the the hardline literal interpretation that doesn't take into consideration history and change. And um, thank you for that. And you you, uh, you mentioned how um, a, a rigid, narrow interpretation of the Second Amendment can hold back our progress as a country, I think I, I heard. How so? We have more gun violence per capita than should be allowed in what's considered a civilized nation. People are afraid of the people who are open carrying in many states. Um, the open carrying people are afraid of the people who aren't open carrying, which is why they're open carrying in the first place, right, is to show a display of power and to have the gun on them uh, in their view in case they would need it, right? And so this is where we are as a country. And our rigid insistence that the Second Amendment be our only guide is part of what gets us there. Um, putting aside mass shootings, even, if you think about the vast amount of gun violence and gun deaths in this country, that's not mass shootings. Mm-mm. It's shootings between people who know one another. Um, if you take away, if you take guns out of that equation, if you take away our perceived right to have guns in every sort of space from worship spaces to workplaces to movie theaters um even to some some government buildings you know it's it's staggering how those disputes would end maybe with a fist fight but generally it would just end with words honestly it's much much easier to pull a gun than it is to get close enough to someone to punch them in the face. Right, right. And I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say also suicide is a big uh, 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 way that people die because of gun violence too. Absolutely. Yes. And again, how it's morbid, but it's it's a lot easier to to use a gun than it would be other means maybe. Uh, An impulse, if a gun's laying around, it's done, right? Where if there, if it's not, maybe maybe wouldn't happen. So that's another yeah. factor. It is. It's a huge factor because also suicide by gun is quite often more successful than suicide attempts by other means. And so, um, yeah, it it would cut down on the suicide rate enormously. Um, yeah. So no, you're not wrong there at all. And and now getting back, before you know it, our, our time and this conversation is going to be uh, up and we'll have to have another part two. <laughs> but I want to ask you, uh, have you ever reflected on how many generations removed you are from your European ancestors that migrated here as well as the indigenous uh, ancestors that were here? Well, where I'm from, people still want to know if you're Danish, if you're Irish, if you're you know, what, what, if you're Norwegian, um, so Jensen Ian means Danish, at least, you know, there are a couple other things it can mean, but the Ian marks me as a Dane, right? There's a little town, Elkhorn, Iowa, right by where I'm from, that's a predominantly Danish town. And I've been back home, I usually go back some in the summer, and people still talk about, oh, well, Elkhorn, you know, that's where the Danes live. And, and I remember one time in high school, someone 
trying to figure out some boy trying to figure out how to call me. And this is back when there were only phone books. And he he had to keep calling Jensen's because there were so many Ian Jensen's in the phone book. And hardly he said, oh, you must have a lot of uncles. And I said, I do, but they live elsewhere. I mean, those were not relatives. So I'm still from a place where where that sort of history is very present, right? That sort of heritage is very present and is considered um, relevant, I guess, in the day-to-day in a way that it's not in most places. So yeah, I don't separate that out either. And I feel like I I am um, interested in and aware of how far back that history is, but also in some ways how close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it must be a, a difficulty sometimes, maybe not, to come to terms with the two worlds, right? Uh, be, um, when, when, even when I, I've had guests on that um, are mixed race and, and they reflect often how it's, it's difficult to come to terms with the fact that some of their ancestors uh, abused the other of their ancestors. Uh, and, and I guess you could say in, in some way that could be the case with your experiences, well, we all could say that. I mean, if we trace it back, but you know more clearly, perhaps, because the Europeans came and objectified the people that were already here, and and they commingled, and you're the result of that in some way, shape, or form. Sure, and I think there is often, most often, the narrative of how that's difficult. It's also really interesting, though. Um, it provides endless amounts of ways of looking at the world and of, of narrative complexity. So when people who read my book want to ask me about, you know, why, why I'm always so interested in seeing things from all sides and in not making, you know, what I'm writing about gun violence is usually a very polarizing topic. And I'm trying to really go all the way around the circle and see the problem from all angles. And I think when you're raised both by um, you know, both in the context of being an indigenous person and yeah, from the colonizers as well, right? Y- you are you are well positioned to be looking at any one topic from all of the sides. And so for me, yeah, I could talk about how that provides conflict, but I don't necessarily see that conflict as negative. No, no, because it's just human, <laughs> you know. Yes. Uh, that's who we are. You know, we're all, it's a strange thing. We're all human, but we like to categorize and we, you know, take advantage of each other off all too often. That's the way we seem to, to uh, evolve or to, to move from one generation to the next. And, and, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we all have that in our history. A lot of us just aren't aware of it. So you are clearly aware of it, and you can clearly speak to it and address it. And I think that is is a, a, almost a superpower in a way when you're trying to understand social problems and issues. I think it does give a, a unique pers- – or not unique maybe, but uh, I think it gives me a broader perspective. And I, right now we've become so polarized in the States in our thinking, in our arguing, in our rhetoric, and – on all sides, people really want to just argue and blame, it seems, rather than thinking about what it might be like for the other person on the other side. And we're not getting very far with that on any social problem. So I do think that having a broader perspective is useful. 
Hmm. Crucial. It's not always popular. It's not always popular. I will say that people generally want you to be on one side and stay there, but I'm not very interested in that. So where would people be able to pick up Carrie and uh, the other, well, I forgot the title now, I have to look at my notes, uh, work that you have published? Sure. I mean, they're readily available. Um, obviously, you know, through through Random House, um, Carrie's available through Barnes and Noble, through your local booksellers, through Bookshop, through Amazon, although they're out of favor by you know, for most um, more independent writers. But yeah, anywhere you find a book and also most libraries as well. Um, and From the Hilltop too is available in all the same ways. University of Nebraska Press is the publisher there. They used to publish this wonderful series, um, Indigenous Story or Series that Gerald Visner and Diane Glancy edited. And it's a defunct series, but the books are not defunct. So, so you can still order straight from the press if you prefer that or from Bookshop or Anywhere books are sold. That's the one I was thinking of, From the Hilltop. Thank you for mentioning that title as well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what's what's next? What are, you, what are you working on now? I am working on some essays right now about gentrification and climate crisis. Um, so in our neighborhood, for example, where I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, things are changing so rapidly. Just in the seven going on eight years I've lived here, and it occurs to me we talk about gentrification in America, mostly in an urban context, but especially during the pandemic, people are moving to rural or less urban anyway. We're not really rural college town sorts of places, though, um, across the country and gentrifying them. And so I'm looking at what that's going to mean for affordability in places like that, what that's going to mean for indigenous people for um, other groups who traditionally don't necessarily have the buying power to pack up and move anywhere, you know, that they would choose. Um, people who've lived in, in our part of Northwest Arkansas, their whole lives are being priced out now and there literally isn't anywhere for them to go. And so looking at how that's long been a city problem and now it's becoming a rural problem too is what um, I'm looking at writing right now. And then I'm hoping to get back to fiction at some point but the world keeps providing, you know, good material for nonfiction and problems that I'm interested in. So for now, I think the next book will be nonfiction too. And and how how important would you say um, the arts in general, writing in, in particular, whether it be poetry, uh, fiction, uh, or or nonfiction, are to activism to you know making making things better in society. I think they're important for inspiration and I think they're important for building community. Um, writers are not inherently activists, even if what we write about includes activism. I, I like to draw that line because otherwise it's easy to say, oh, I wrote a poem or, oh, I wrote an essay or even a book and that's activism. I don't think that's necessarily activism unless I suppose if you're giving all the proceeds to you know, an activist organization, well, then that's that's something. If you're showing up and you're you're protesting. If you're up at line three right now in Minnesota, you know, um, chaining yourself um, and, and trying to to stop the pipeline going in there, that's activism. Um, I think what I do is I try to provoke community around these ideas that we've been talking about today and to promote conversation and this broader view of considering 
all of the viewpoints around a subject and then maybe advocating for one or maybe just being a conversation starter. And I think that's what art does best is it starts conversation. Sometimes it proposes solutions and sometimes it gets out there and marches to right the, the people who create the art, but but not always. And I think both both kinds of things are needed. Both sorts of activities are needed. The making of art, the stepping away from the world for a little bit to do that, and also the being in the world and being involved. Well said. I think we'll leave it at that. Tony Jensen, author, professor, I'm going to say activist, and uh, <laughs> a really great conversationalist. Thank you for taking time out to be on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yes, absolutely. Take care. You too.
With the remarkable success, at least in New York, of the vaccines produced to combat the coronavirus, there is growing hope and belief that life is returning to the bruised and battered streets of the city. Not exactly the life we knew pre-pandemic, but life nonetheless. The performing arts and the venues in which they thrive have been hit hard, and the very fabric of entertainment may change. Eighteen months of forced inactivity can alter not only how the public views entertainment, but how the entertainers view themselves. It has already become apparent in virtual presentations and the shows that have bravely returned to the stage that a comeback is not as simple as riding that proverbial bike. I have seen more than a few bike accidents occur with even the most seasoned of performers. The oddity of performing without an audience has harmed the fragile symbiosis between an artist and the public. Some may choose not to return, performers opting for the security of careers outside of the industry, audiences choosing to stream or rent or download entertainment in lieu of going out. This is also a legacy of a war on the arts, on science, and on truth that has been waged by Republicans, Evangelicals, Trumpers, and would-be fascists of all stripes for decades. Of course, art is a primary target for them. The arts traditionally lead the battle against hatred, ignorance, fear, hypocrisy, and the toxic dishonesty of the right. A pandemic affords these true enemies of the people a chance to advance this battle by attrition, letting support for the arts fade, letting clubs and theaters disappear as their customers vanish to quarantine. We must remain vigilant. However infuriating the lack of governmental desire to substantively help them as they hang on by threads of hope and love and public support, these clubs and cabarets and theaters must survive. It is that simple. A small club or restaurant like Pangea, a jewel box of a room on Manhattan's Lower East Side, is a weakened David battling a Goliath of indifference, active hostility, and bureaucratic red tape, so that even funds and support earmarked for just such a club are not assured of delivering desperately needed help. Funds are squandered in the traditional style of big government, and a lack of sympathy and goodwill for small businesses struggling in this new world all but guarantees the loss of a disturbing number of venues. Pangea's family of performers, staff, and patrons has done yeoman service to keep the place afloat through lockdown and distancing and the hundred other obstacles that have arisen during this hellish year and a half. There have been fundraisers, GoFundMe pages, and just good old-fashioned patronage when allowed, and they seem to be working, but they should not have to work this hard. There is government support flying around on the federal, state, and local levels, but that support rarely alights on the most deserving recipients. It can be an obstacle as simple as an out-of-touch governor or mayor flexing muscles by enforcing restrictions and curfews where they are not needed, where they do no good in battling the spread of the illness. Two or three hours more of business each day could and would have made a difference between success and failure for a number of these outlets. We can add our voices and our dollars to this battle whenever and wherever we can, supporting local businesses teetering on the brink and finding it more and more difficult to sustain nightlife and the art scene for the benefit of all. Arts and entertainment are the lifeblood of this city, this country, this world. Without them, we may survive, but we will not be living.
up on my garden gates a snail, that's what it is. The lock up on my garden gates a snail, that's what it is. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. Caterpillar sheds his skin to find a butterfly within. Caterpillar shed his skin to find a butterfly within. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain. Oh, Juanita. Oh, Juanita. The sunlight through the brown-green maple leaves hanging from the stems attached to a branch and me in a house built next to that tree wondering inside my heart and soul as I sit on an old blue couch what to do today and books with magazines careen in stillness across the top of our coffee table. Tokoro wa Tokyo Azabu Juba, Horishimo Hill Sagari, Kuraya Mizakawa, Semi Shigure, Kuromanto Nikira Kira, Hikarumede, Mapiru Makara Yokai Henge. Tokta bi 
じっぱなしで俺にかかった依頼苦労話の一つや二つ聞かせろと手を取りゆくのもよそらごと Episode 431 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Tony Jensen, also Jerry Geddes, and these musical artists Thelonious Monk, Radiohead, Tune Yards, Esme Patterson, Donovan, Happy End, Branford Mar Salas, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.